Well, there's this wonderful story about joy and humility and healing. It's in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5. It's the story of Naaman. You know this one, right? Naaman is the captain of the army of the king of Aram. And he is dignified. He is, I mean, very high up in the pecking order. Uh, He's got a fancy palace, fancy clothes, all that jazz. But there's one thing that Naaman has uh, that's hard to handle, and that is he's got leprosy. And this leprosy uh, was such that it's a degrading disease, and so uh, probably his life would be cut shorter than a normal, healthy man his age. Well, anyway, during uh, one of the many raids that Naaman went on, he sacked an Israelite settlement and took a little Israelite girl as a slave for his wife. So he takes this girl who's now a household slave in their home, and she just has this amazing heart of gold. You know, here she is captive in this home and she sees Naaman and how he's suffering and she has compassion on him. And she says, uh, you know, there's this prophet I know of in, in Israel named Elisha and if you were to go to see him, you would be healed. So Naaman asks his king, the king of Aram, if he can go to Israel and see this Elisha guy. The king says, absolutely, you know, if that'll make you better. The king writes a letter to Elisha, says, hey, my man, Naaman, is on his way. Get ready uh, to receive him. Naaman gets gold and silver and something that was almost as uh, valuable back then were fine linens and often colored linens were very rare. So he packs up these three things and is on his way to, on this caravan. I mean, he's got his whole entourage to go see Elisha. So Naaman rolls into town. Right? No, he's on a camel or something, but just pretend he's in a Benz or something. He's got all this pomp and circumstance. And Elisha, who got the letter from the king, doesn't even come out to meet him. Instead, he sends a lowly servant out to meet Naaman. And the servant just says this, Absolutely, you can be healed uh, by our God. Here's what you have to do. Go into the Jordan River and dip seven times. Just wash in there and you'll be fine. <laughs> Naaman's furious. Right. He's traveled all this way. He's got a whole caravan of servants and guards. He wore his best clothes. He's got precious gifts. He expected, I think, to look this prophet in the eye, man to man, equal to equal, and say, you've got something I need. I've got stuff I can pay you for. Let's get this thing done. Right? Because that's what people with power do. You have influence. You have connections. You get it done. Not at all what Naaman expected. It was beneath his dignity. It was insulting to his his position, and it was bordering on foolishness. Like, how do you heal leprosy dipping in a river seven times, right? So this is exactly what Naaman thought. He will surely come out uh, to me and stand and call me in the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leprosy. Now he's mad. He says, are not Abana and and Farpna, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not have washed in them and be clean? So he turned away in rage and left. Now, what was Naaman's original problem? Leprosy, right? That's his original problem. He's got leprosy. What was the longing of his heart? Well, obviously it's to be cured of this horrible disease, leprosy, right? He had such joy in the idea of being healed. He goes up to his king, hey, will you write this letter for me? Can I go? Absolutely. He's got such joy in the prospect of being cured by leprosy. He'll go, he'll expect, uh, no cost is too much. Gold, silver, fine linens, whatever. I'll travel all the way across the desert to get to Israel so I can be cured. He just wasn't willing to do something beneath him, something humiliating, something unexpected. 
Clearly, Naaman had built up the expectation of how he would receive the joy of healing. Pomp and circumstance, a powerful prophet would wave his hand like magic, and then he'd just be healed. And of course, he would pay the man for the deed, right? So then, when Naaman goes home, he's not in debt to anyone, not even Israel's God. Pretty good way to do it. Now, Naaman goes off ticked. Luckily for him, he has some wise and humble servants, and they say this. If he had told you to do something great, wouldn't you have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean? So Naaman repents, takes advantage of this amazing offer that stands right before him. He washes seven times in the nasty Jordan River, and he's cleansed. He paid the price of humility and faith, And he was made new, all for the joy set before him, the joy of the idea of being clean and free from this debilitating disease. Fast forward several centuries to the first century A.D. The people of Israel have a longing in their hearts. They don't have leprosy like Naaman, but they are not free. And generation after generation have been reading the prophets to their children and to their children's children and on down the line. They've been looking forward to the greatest possible joy imaginable. The joy of God coming to dwell with them. The joy of God's shalom. His peace, where wars would cease, where captives would be set free, where the ruler from the line of David would reign, and where evil would be judged. There was a term for this kind of joy, this state of being that they were looking forward to. And that term is, of course, the kingdom of God. Or in Matthew's gospel, he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Well, enter Jesus onto the scene of history. He comes in proclaiming the arrival of this kingdom of heaven. He was judging evil, right? By casting out evil spirits with the word. He was showing, yes, the the judgment of evil is starting. He was bringing peace by reconciling those outside of the community and bringing them inside. So they are now able to connect with God and with neighbor. He was healing the lame and the, and the blind and the lepers and the deaf. He even raised a few people from the dead from time to time. Something new, something God-like was breaking into the world. But he wasn't doing things the way people expected. He wasn't doing it the way they expected. The kingdom wasn't looking exactly like people had dreamed it would look. So Jesus begins teaching in these stories, in these parables, to help illustrate the importance of what was taking place before their very eyes. So he tells them a parable about the kingdom of heaven being like seed that's sown throughout the world. And he says, be careful how you listen, because if you miss this, you miss everything you've been waiting for. He tells them a parable about wheat and tares, illustrating the point that there comes a time when you have to pick sides. You have to choose the world or my kingdom. There comes a time when you have to decide, do you believe in Jesus and that he is the expected one, or are you going to wait for somebody else? Now the point of that parable, of course, like we saw last week, is that the the time is now. Okay? Then he tells them a parable about mustard seed and leaven and how the kingdom, you know, might seem insignificant. It may not begin the way you expect, but have faith. It is more than you could possibly hope for. And tonight, we're going to look at a pair of parables. Two tiny little parables that go, that go together that suggest that Jesus is the joy, not only that Israel was waiting for, but that our world is waiting for as well. 
Would you stand with me as we read these three amazing verses? In Matthew 13, verses 44 through 46. This is Jesus teaching. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, and again, from the joy over it, goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls, and upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus, it's amazing that so much truth and power could be in three verses. Uh, I am thankful for this word tonight. And I pray that you would open it up. Uh, and as you open up your word, I, Holy Spirit, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds too to receive it. Thank you that this word is still active and powerful and potent to us today, just like it was to those first hearers. We need your help to receive it, Father. Amen. You may be seated. If you have money or valuables, um, it's common, I don't even think twice, about putting those things in either the bank, or if they're valuable things that I use a lot, insuring them, right? Your homeowner's coverage or your rental insurance covers a whole gamut of things, your computer, your bicycle, all that jazz. Most banks are even insured so that if a robber robs the bank that your money's in, uh, up to a certain amount, the federal government, in theory, will, uh, will back you there. I hope that never has to happen because I have my doubts. But anyway, uh, in the ancient world, and in fact, just into a few centuries ago, that wasn't the case for most people. So in a, in a world in, in Jesus' day, you had maybe a few different ways to have your wealth. You had land that was passed down from generation to generation to generation. You never wanted to sell that land. Uh, you had livestock, if you were a person who was pastoral in nature. But fewer and fewer people were by the first century. More and more people were moving to the cities. And you had cash. You had coin, silver, gold, things like that. And what could you do with that? And if you're just a regular family, um, if, if bandits wanted to, they'd kick your door down, they didn't have deadbolts or anything, and take your coins, right? So people would put them in jars and hide them in the mud walls of their house. They would dig different spots, they would divide up their money and hide them in different places in the earth. And we actually have documents from the Qumran community, that's that community out in the desert where we found the Dead Sea Scrolls. And there's this interesting scroll they found that's called, it's on something called pressed leaf copper. So imagine copper pressed so thin that you can etch writing on it, and this was unraveled, and it was a plot, it was all of these different burial sites for people's money from this Qumran community. It's interesting. So they found one of these and dug up a jar that contained 20 pounds of silver, and it's dated to the 11th century BC. It was found in the mid 20th century. This is amazing that stuff that old is still out there buried somewhere. Anyway, sometimes people would bury a massive amount of money and sometimes they would die without any next of kin knowing where that money was and then it's just there in some field somewhere for somebody to find randomly, right? In Jesus' parable, there's a man working in a field, he's digging, he doesn't own the field, so anything of value he might find in the field would automatically belong to the landowner. Anyway, he's digging there, and lo and behold, he finds a treasure. He immediately recognizes the value of what he's found. He looks around, I'm imagining, it doesn't say that he looked around, but he buries it back up. 
he seized by such great joy of his discovery that that joy prompts him to sell all that he has in order to be able to afford the field. Because if he can afford the field, then he can also afford, he can also take ownership of whatever's in that field, including that treasure. Now when's the last time you happened upon buried treasure? Anyone here? I mean, like a legitimate, I found 20 bucks one time, that was pretty cool. But I'm talking about the kind of treasure that you could actually sell a home, cars, everything you ever had, your retirement plan, all of that, and come out with a net gain. I'm talking about a treasure that would change your life. I'm talking about like the super lottery kind of treasure. It doesn't happen. I mean, not even once in a lifetime does that happen. Maybe once in a thousand lifetimes, or I don't know what the odds would be, math people, but once in a billion, I don't know. Uh, It's crazy... Like, don't, don't bank on that, like, that's how you're going to make it in retirement. You're not going to find buried treasure. But this man finds buried treasure, recognizes the value, and does what he has to do to get it. And Jesus is pointing out that if you were to find a treasure like that, you would be a fool not to, to figure out a way to receive that treasure. And that's how it is with the kingdom of heaven. Or take the merchant seeking fine pearls. A completely different sort of man than a laborer working in the fields. The merchant is actually this business savvy master of the pearl market. He knows how to size up pearls, assess their value. He's enamored with their physical beauty. He, that's his business. And yet, none of the pearls he's found have satisfied him yet. He knows out there... Like all you fishermen out there who knows there's the fish out there that you know, is your lifelong catch. He knows that out there is the perfect pearl. He may even be consigned to the fact that he may never find it. But that's what he's hunting for. That's what he's hunting for. He goes to pearl show after pearl show. And there it is. Out there somewhere, the perfect pearl. Well... You know, today in our culture, we culture pearls, and they kind of seem like a dime a dozen. Yeah, there's some really rare ones out there, but they're kind of common. Uh, but in Jesus' day, pearls were much more valuable even than gold. And diamonds were, really weren't even a thing. I don't think people could cut diamonds very well in the first century. So pearls were of extreme value. In fact, one historian notes Cleopatra had this necklace of pearls that was worth 25 million denarii. One denarii equals the equivalent of a day laborer's wages. So 25 million days of labor. That's what this woman's necklace was worth and it was made out of pearls, right? Anyway, imagine the joy of this merchant when he comes across the pearl of great worth. Now, the one selling this pearl must think it's pretty cool, but doesn't really understand the value of what he's got. But the merchant doesn't think twice. He sells all the other pearls, all the other things he has, just to get the one. That's how it is when the kingdom of heaven comes near, when it presents itself to you. One man stumbled upon the treasure, and for the joy set before him, sold all that he had to secure it. One man was seeking a pearl his whole life, and when he finally found it, he joyfully sold all that he had just to receive it. This parable is not a lesson on how to find Jesus, on how to receive the kingdom of God. If anything, it tells us that the seed is cast throughout the whole world, and there's all kinds of different ways to find the kingdom. Some people weren't going to church when they found the kingdom They weren't part of the people of Israel when they found the kingdom. They had never read the Bible when they found the kingdom, when Jesus revealed himself to them. And oh, 
you hear these stories, they're amazing. Like, have you ever seen like the transformations videos and things like that? People in people groups, I hate that term, but people that live in cultures where missionaries have never been and all of a sudden a missionary comes like, oh yeah, we've heard of Jesus. He was in a dream. We, we worship him. It's like amazing. So the kingdom sometimes shows up and when you are confronted with that treasure, Jesus is saying, receive it. Then there's other people who have been seeking pearls of wisdom. They, you, you, I've got friends who I think have tried like eight different religious movements and philosophies. You know, and Come on. The right one to after. <laughs> Jesus is after to be found. But you know, maybe that was your story. Maybe you searched and searched and searched and searched and finally you found, or rather Jesus made himself available. You discovered. You discovered the pearl of great worth. Hmm. One thing you don't see communicated in these parables is a sense of anyone losing out. You don't see buyer's remorse. Visa has these different commercials, you know, that talk about the value of relationships or whatever, and, you know, the priceless commercials. So maybe it's something like this. Airline tickets, $1,000. Hotel, $800. Snorkel rental, $40. The joy of seeing your child's face when they see their first sea turtle, priceless. Right? Uh, you know, it's kind of fun, and you know, the value of relationship, you can't put a price on that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, fun advertisements. But the, the visa commercials never show you, like, three weeks after the vacation, and you're back in the rut of, of daily life, and getting the kids to school, and going to work, or whatever, and the visa bill comes. And you're like, dang, was it really worth it? Like, wasn't there a cheaper vacation we could do to, like, have a priceless moment? Couldn't the kids, like, face be all cool seeing a sea turtle in a zoo in Seattle or something? But... But you don't get the sense that with the parables there's any kind of buyer's remorse. Like these people are willing to give all they have to receive the treasure, to receive the pearl. And, and, and they, they come out with a net gain. There's no sense of like losing more than you gain. What Jesus is saying is that the kingdom or relationship with him is worth more than anything you could possibly imagine. Some of you might be familiar with the name David Phillips. I don't know if that rings a bell. David Phillips is a civil engineer and taught at UC Davis uh, in the 90s. I don't know if he's still there anymore. But he's most famous for the way that he figured out to get frequent flyer miles for life. Uh, The story goes something like this. Healthy Choice, you know the ones that make like puddings and frozen meals, they came out with a a promotional deal where if you got 10 of their barcodes on their Healthy Choice products and you turn those in, you could get 500 air miles. Well, they ran a, a, an introductory deal where if you send in 10 barcodes, you could get 1,000 air miles, so double the miles. So this guy, this engineer who reads every label, all the fine print, he figures out that there's a, a bargain store in his community, and he finds all the bargain stores in this chain. And he buys them out of the cheapest healthy choice thing that has a qualifying barcode, and that was pudding cups. Healthy choice pudding cups at 25 cents pop. He bought... 2,150 cups of pudding. And he, kind of like the guy who found the treasure and didn't want anyone else to know about it. So he buries the treasure, right? And then he goes and buys the field and then it's legally his. Well, this guy doesn't want anyone to catch on to what he's doing. So he kind of acts crazy and tells all the store managers, I'm preparing for Y2K. Because it was like in the 90s. And uh, so you remember all the Y2K stuff? So they just think he's kind of nuts. And they're probably happy that he's moving product off the shelf. Like, go ahead, take all our pudding. We don't care. So he takes all this pudding and he invests. uh, Well, first of all, let me tell you this other cool part of the story. 
So he has two, what did I say, 12,150 cups of pudding. And uh, so he, he starts to, he and his wife take the labels off and keep the barcodes and they're eating the pudding. And they start to get sick of the pudding. And they're, like his wife's thumbs start to bleed. And they get, we've got to get another plan. Because there's a time deadline and when to get that double mile deal. So he has an idea. He goes to the Salvation Army. He says, I will donate all this pudding to you guys if you provide just free labor of pulling these tops off and putting them in a pile for me. No problem. So check this out. $3,000 is about what it cost him to get the pudding cups. He bought some other products before he figured out the pudding. So he invested three grand. And then with a tax rebate for donating all that pudding, $800 off. So $2,200. He got the equivalent of $150,000 of air travel. That's a pretty good return on your investment. Now, it sounds crazy to say that dude just spent $3,000 on pudding cups, right? That sounds insane. Who would do that? But the benefit was so much more. And here's the interesting thing is it got him over a million miles. So as a million-mile member with American Airlines, which is the one he did it with, he get all these perks. So now he is traveling all around the world, but he still makes miles through all these other deals, be a million-mile member, at five times the rate he can possibly spend them. So he is set for life, he and his family, for travel. Doesn't that sound nuts? $3,000 worth of pudding cups, but in the, the reward is so much greater. So much greater. David Phillips did not have to be told or convinced of the value of the air miles he could gain through pudding cup proofs of purchase. It was obvious. He knew exactly what to do once the opportunity presented itself. He'd be a fool not to. The man who found the treasure did not have to be convinced of the value of the treasure. It was obvious. He knew exactly what to do to secure the treasure. He would be a fool not to. The merchants who found the pearl of great worth did not have to be told and convinced of the value of the pearl. It was obvious. He knew exactly what to do. He would be a fool not to figure a way to receive that pearl. Jesus' audience knew the value of the kingdom of heaven. At least they knew it was the most valuable thing in the world. It could, if confronted with the kingdom, and, they, and if confronted with the offer of the kingdom of heaven, and you ask any first century Israelite, would you give up all of your money for this? Absolutely. I don't think there'd be a shadow of a doubt about that. The issue was never with the value of the kingdom of heaven. And I think, the thing, I think that's true for us too. The issue is not with... Hey, if someone were to offer you, hey, it's going to maybe cost you your investments and everything, but you could have peace for your entire life, justice, eternal life, forgiveness of sin, the most wonderful community you could ever imagine. Oh, and you can... You can be included in the family of God. It's a no-brainer. If you believe that, if you saw the value, if you recognize it, that would be a no-brainer. What is the issue? What was the issue for the first century Israelites? What is the issue for most of us? It's Jesus. The issue with Jesus' audience was Jesus. Throughout the parables, Jesus has not just been saying, Hey, the kingdom is here. He's been saying, The kingdom is here. And the only way to receive that kingdom is through me. Through obedience to me. Through faith in me. There's no other way but through Jesus. Naaman wanted the healing. He just had an issue with the method. He didn't want to go through the waters of the Jordan River. It was stinky and gross. There's better rivers in Damascus where he was from. Israel wanted the kingdom. 
They just had an issue with the method. They didn't want to go through the person of Jesus who did not fit the bill. Jesus is described as this way, in this way. The way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. Jesus is the good shepherd, the true sheep of the kingdom. Know His voice. Jesus is the gate. No one enters but through Him. Those who hear the words of Jesus and follow Him build their house on solid rock. Those who don't build on shifting sand. Jesus is the bread of life, the light of the world, the living water. All the elements of life, by the way. In our culture, we're told, don't put your eggs all in one basket. Diversify. Don't overcommit. You might miss out. I'll tell you what, that's pretty darn good advice for your financial portfolio. That's not good advice for life in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus tells these two parables as a wake-up call. The kingdom of God has come near in me. The only way to receive the kingdom is through me. And the great, if you found great treasure, you wouldn't think twice. Overcome with joy, you would do what it takes to gain the treasure. Same with the pearl. And the same ought to be too with Jesus is what he's saying. Now, the key of all of this, these two parables, is joy. Speaking about the birth of Jesus, the angel proclaims, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Good news of great joy. Yes, he's here. Yeah, but now's not a good time. I'm too busy. Yeah, but I'm not ready to give up my old life. Yeah, but I haven't weighed the options. Is it really worth it? Or... Just let me, just let me get my career going first, then I'll be more serious about it. Just let me figure some things out first. Just let me fill in the blank. For pre-Christians, whether you've been seeking like the merchant or just stumbled upon the good news of the grace of God, don't delay. Respond to the joy you feel. Follow Jesus with passion and resolve. There is no greater investment, no greater return. And for most of you here tonight, who along with me call ourselves disciples as we're stumbling in the right direction toward Jesus together, and we sometimes still wonder, dang, is it worth it? Let's be honest. Those are real questions that Every disciple I've ever known asks from time to time, is it really worth it? Be encouraged. Jesus is the greatest treasure. Let me ask you to join me in something I pray often. Holy Spirit, bear your fruit in me. Not fruits. When You know that litany of fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control? That is the fruit of the Spirit. You don't just get one or the other. Pray that that fruit will be born in you. That is a gift of God to us. And you know, joy is part of that package. I think that's what we often lack. We're really good at following through on our duty. And there's a place for duty. Ah, I love my grandparents for their duty. They know how to get stuff done. But you know what? Duty, doesn't, duty leads to death sometimes. Death of the heart, callousness. Jaded feelings. Um, we need joy. We're, we're to be marked as a people of joy. The Spirit is what gifts us joy. We can't just, I can't just sit here and preach, 
Be more joyful. I can't even do it for myself. But when I receive joy in the Spirit, when I try and stay connected to the vine through Christ, which is what you're doing right now, by the way. You made a decision to be here, to listen to a teaching, to sing some songs, to pray together. You're staying connected to the vine. And I pray that joy would be the product of that for us. Where your joy lies, there your treasure lies. Where your treasure lies, there your heart will be also. I think what Jesus is doing, you know, people in his culture understood what the kingdom was maybe better than we do. They were certainly looking forward to it more than most of us do. Uh, I, this pastor in California I served, he, uh, he had a foreign visitor from Argentina come up, a very, pastor of a very poor parish. He says, I know why you people never talk about heaven. You're in it. I mean, so there's just not a lot of sense of urgency for us. But I don't want to leave the good news in ambiguity. Why are we to be so joyful? You know who really nails it on this parable? I've got to admit. The Jesus Storybook Bible. The Jesus, let, me, let me just quote it to close us. This is right out of my kid's Bible. God had a, had a treasure too, of course. A treasure that was lost long ago. What was God's treasure? The most important thing. The thing God loved most in the world. God's treasure was His children, you and me. It was why Jesus had to come into the world to find God's treasure and to pay the price to win them back. And Jesus would do it, even if it cost Him everything He had. Jesus went to the cross for the joy set before Him. His joy is your salvation and mine. Would you pray with me? I don't even know where to begin, Lord. I'm just so confronted by uh, just the fact that I feel like I don't, I don't really grip the, uh, the magnitude of what it is you're saying. I, I get the sense in studying this passage and reading it over and over that there's something more to all of this. Something that the people I know are continually longing for. Jesus, you call us to knock and the door will be opened. You'll, you'll be there. So we are knocking and I am, I'm praying with my brothers and sisters that uh, you would pour into our hearts joy over what you've done, over what you continue to do. I pray for the gift of being able to see you at work and to turn and to praise you and to have thanksgiving for all of the things that you're involved in. Lord, give us eyes to see you. Give us the ability to comprehend how awesome you are and how amazing it is that you're involved in our lives, that you actually died for us and continue to reign over us. And in your spirit, you live in us and with us. I pray for those who are struggling with the is it worth it question, or I haven't felt God in a while, or are you really there, Lord? Pray for the gift of your tangible presence. Holy Spirit, bear your fruit in us. May we be people 
marked by the qualities of love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There's no law over those things, Lord. Amen.